Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. Joining me at the end of election season. Luke, I think it's the end of election season for the first time in like, gosh, it feels like forever. What, two and a half years? Uh, joining us is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you feeling now that there are no more elections? I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life now that I don't have to prepare for another election in which I have to, you know, I, I, I feel excited to vote for Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock because uh, that has been yeah, uh, a lot of my election time has been devoted to seeing him <laughs> campaigning and waiting and wondering if he's going to win or not. So it's a uh, it's going to be uh, interesting. Like the next time I go, it's like, oh, he's not here. <laughs> Where'd he go? <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to wait six years. He went from being on the ballot five times in uh, two and a half years to being uh, a senator for six full years. And that's what we're here to talk about today, which is that. Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock defeated Herschel Walker on Tuesday in that runoff. He ended up winning by about two points, about, I think, a little under 100,000 votes from the last count that I saw. Um, But a pretty significant victory for Democrats, given that they were swept out of statewide office and all of the other statewide contests in the midterm elections. Um, So we're going to recap the what what we thought about that conclusion and, and why that race came out the way that it did. We'll also talk about an effort to move the state of Georgia up in the Democratic primary process. This is something that President Biden asked uh, the National Democratic Party to work on uh, that would take effect if it all works out. It would take effect in the 2024 Democratic primary to the extent that there actually is one if, if Joe Biden's running again. We'll also talk about the latest news on the state's abortion ban. The state Supreme Court reinstated that ban, but that case moves forward. And then uh, something that we haven't really talked about in a long time is uh, lawmaking in Congress. Um, But in between uh, the midterm elections and the seating of the new Congress early next year is the period known as the lame duck period. And it's going to be a pretty active time for legislating in Washington. So we'll talk about what Congress may do in the final days of Democratic control before Republicans take over the U.S. House. But Luke, obviously the big news is that Senator Warnock won re-election. He won election to a full six-year term. And I'll just give you kind of the the open-ended first crack at this. Why was Senator Warnock able to pull this out, you think? Why wasn't wasn't Herschel's fate similar to all the other statewide Republicans that won in the midterm elections? I think the answer to that is is that Raphael Warnock is probably one of the best candidates in the nation and that Herschel Walker is one of the worst candidates in the nation and that probably any other Democrat would have lost and probably any other Republican would have won. Uh, I really think that's what it comes down to because Georgia is a very competitive state still. Uh, you know, I, I, I think at worst we're reg with a purplish hue potentially we're a purple state, but I, I, I think just candidate quality really, really matters here. And I think in, you know, Reverend Raphael Warnock, we had an excellent candidate who is, you know, someone who has a strong record prior to being into politics of caring about people and working for issues that matter, and someone who is incredibly on message, basically indistractable. I mean, he hammered his message of character, integrity, and fighting for, you know, bipartisan solutions the entire campaign, whereas Herschel Walker 
uh, you know, uh, engaged in interesting but pointless debates like who's better, vampires or werewolves? Um, and just every day there was another scandal and another issue that was 100% self-created by Walker. And, you know, the thing that I find so incredible about his problems is that most of them predated the campaign. Sure, he made headlines every once in a while for saying something crazy, but most of it was just his record uh, prior to running for office was so disqualifying on every level and really troubling for a lot of Georgians, including myself. Um, I think it just gave people a permission structure to not vote for him, especially after the fact that the Senate control was off the table. And so there was really no justification for voting for walker on his own merits and there was no larger it's the greater good hold my nose get rid of the democrats and in, in, in control of the senate what did you think of you know democrats have kind of had this debate for a while about do you win in georgia by being a bold full progressive or do you which was kind of the new strategy brought forward by Stacey Abrams and it was embedded in a lot of the organizations that she built as a part of GOTV efforts. Do you, do you be a a full fledged progressive and win that way? Or do you campaign on sort of the Republican light or the acceptable alternative to a, uh, you know, the, the worst parts of the Republican party? I'm not sure that I would call Warnock's strategy Republican light, but it was notable that he, constantly brought up his commitment to bipartisan governing and one of the savviest moves and maybe the most attention grabbing moves that his campaign did early in the runoff was to host a press conference with with a bunch of voters who voted for Brian Kemp in the midterms and also voted for Senator Warnock and have people at a press conference hosted by state democrats get up there and say Governor Kemp has been a tremendous leader of this state, and so has Senator Warnock. And let me tell you why I've supported both of them and why I would support Senator Warnock in this runoff over Herschel Walker. I don't know that it's the Republican light strategy, but it certainly is a step away from the just sort of bold, full-fledged progressive approach. What did you think about that approach and any lessons that Democrats take from that in terms of how how to win in this state going forward and whether or not the the bold progressive approach was a little bit overlearned. I think character is nonpartisan. That's the the first thing I take from this. And I think a lot of the people that I'm around and the the data shows this too because uh, the counties that uh, I I've lived in in my life are actually some of the highest uh Kemp Warnock counties out there is that sometimes partisanship can be trumped by other things and one of the things is character and i think what roy moore did in alabama is significantly worse than even walker's allegations but walker just crossed a line that was so far that there were many republicans including jeff duncan the lieutenant governor of georgia who literally said that he walked into the ballot place and looked at it and left it blank because he just couldn't do it and i think when you are facing a candidate that is that troubled. And like David Perdue, he was not that troubled. He's a jerk. He doesn't care about, you know, the things that I care about. But I would not say that he is completely valueless and unqualified. He was a qualified, smart guy 
who had very different ideology than me, but he was not disqualified as a candidate for senator. Similarly, Brian Kemp, not a, you know, I have different values and priorities than him, but like he has character. He stands up for things that he believes in, even if they're different than me, he has integrity. And Walker just obviously did not, because not only did he have all of these personal problems and allegations of violence, but I mean, like he lied all the time. It would be one thing if he had been remorseful and like, oh, I, you know, I was a horrible person, but I've changed and found God and, you know, legitimately had, you know, changed his path. He just didn't have values. And when you're faced with that, you'd almost be insane to not focus on that because, and I'm very proud of Georgia, to be honest, that that, that there were a, a lot of voters who could differentiate between ideological differences and uh, character. And I think we had a, a very significant amount of Georgians who made that choice in voting for Kemp and the other Republicans and treating Walker as different because he is different. And so I think that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I would say is, I think every race is different and every candidate is different. I think the most important thing for a candidate is to be authentic to themselves. And so it's not like Raphael Warnock stopped talking about voting rights. Like I, every speech that I watched, it came up. It's not like he didn't talk about the progressive things like setting a cap on you know, prescription drug prices, a very progressive issue, or, you know, infrastructure, which is, is you know, a little more nonpartisan. I mean, he, he was still talking about the same stuff. It's just he emphasized other parts of his record and other parts of his appeal. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think that's dishonest or anything. I think that is just being smart and talking about things that, you know, are relevant to this specific race. You should run a different campaign when you're faced with a different opponent in a different political environment. And really, I don't feel like there is much difference between Warnock uh, this time or uh, Warnock last time because Warnock's campaign was very character-focused and very um, focused on his record of being an advocate for people who are uh, disadvantaged and, you know, an advocate for the downtrodden. And I feel like that mentality and that approach was pretty much the same this time. I think just the, the major difference was that he focused a lot more on the character of his opponent this time than he did last time. Because last time he focused on how the policies of Republicans and Kelly Loeffler were not going to help Georgia move forward and that Democrats' policies would. Whereas this time, he, you know, one of my favorite things the campaign did, and just, you know, I can't remember the exact wording, but he just like tweeted out, like, don't let Herschel Walker be my mama's senator. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's just like, it was so funny, but like, it also, like, it rang true. You know, it's just like, you, we just don't want this guy to be, uh, we'd be embarrassed by him. And it's like, I was embarrassed by David Perdue, but not to the extent. We all know we would have been embarrassed by Walker going up to the Senate and making a fool of himself and the state as a whole. We'd be, you know, laughing stock, and nobody wanted that. And so it's just like you'd be stupid to not take advantage of that that vein. And so I think, unfortunately, for Democrats as a whole, uh, the only thing we've really learned is, you know, pray extra hard that Republicans nominate unqualified candidates because it seems like. Georgians are smart voters and they will they will take into consideration if someone is objectively disqualified. Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, for Democrats, though, Republicans have learned that lesson as well and that they're going to try a lot harder next time Donald Trump says, oh, I have a great candidate for you. Uh, I, I think they're going to try real hard next time to not let that happen. Yeah, I mean, that brings up 
is this kind of the, at least in this moment, is this kind of the high watermark for Democrats in the state? Like, you know, there, there are examples on both sides of how Herschel Walker ran a particularly bad campaign, his lack of message discipline. Um, Greg Bluestein has a great in-depth kind of start to finish how this runoff went. Uh, we'll put it in show notes. You should go read it at the AJC. Um, but there were, there were little bits in there about how Herschel Walker's wife wanted Herschel Walker to win the majority of all black votes in this race, which no Republican in any race in this country has like ever come close to in the modern era. Um, and then there were other examples of where Senator Warnock ran like a particularly savvy, particularly good campaign, including uh, going to Herschel Walker's hometown, getting one of Herschel Walker's former football coaches, high school football coach to come out and say that he was supporting Senator Warnock and that Herschel was not ready for the Senate. And Greg Bluestein reports that even Republicans were just flabbergasted at how quickly Herschel Walker got thrown off message because he was so personally offended that the Warnock campaign went to his hometown, trotted out a former football coach, and basically threw them off. They were trying to basically muddy Senator Warnock's uh, views of Senator Warnock by trying to tie him to some apartment complex that was uh, I think, you know, loosely tied to a charity, loosely tied to his church. I don't, you know, the the connection always seemed kind of tenuous. But they had driven that message. The The Walker campaign had driven that message for a few days and was trying to highlight it in media, social media, all this stuff. And then the moment that Herschel got offended by this uh, visit to his hometown, they pretty much ditched the whole thing. Um so there were other instances, and you have even Republicans on social media today talking about how effective Senator Warnock's ad campaigns have been from start to finish. So you have examples on both sides where Senator Warnock ran a tremendous campaign and Herschel Walker ran a particularly bad one. But, you know, you're not going to have that environment every single time. And, you know, you even have Republicans like Eric Erickson who are saying today that you know, this is the fault of letting Trump have too much influence over the candidates that get selected. And this was a very clear kind of A-B test for Republicans. You had one very Trumpy candidate that got through and lost, and almost all of the other candidates, maybe with the exception of Burt Jones, that were nominated by Republicans statewide all won. And so you, you Republicans are saying we shouldn't let this happen again. So for Democrats, do you think that this is the high watermark? And how do you get from where they are now where you need an almost perfect campaign for Democrats and a truly flawed campaign for Republicans to getting this to be more consistently a competitive state. I, I think you need time to pass. <laughs> uh, you know, and th I mean, this was a particularly bad political environment for Democrats. Um, we have a president who's very unpopular in the state that is a member of the Democratic Party and the economy has been rough. But, Georgia, you know, the dynamics that have been pushing Georgia towards being more competitive will not change. And so I think the thing that should be learned from this race is that we've given a lot of moderate, independent, even center-right voters a permission structure to vote for Democrats under certain circumstances. And I, I genuinely believe that a lot of voters 
never want someone they voted for to fail. And so even if some people voted for Warnock because of the fact they just really found Walker to be objectionable, I think when they see him on the news, they're going to be like, man, I hope he's doing a good job. And they're going to want him to succeed rather than feeling like I didn't vote for him. He's not my senator kind of thing. And so I'm hoping that Warnock be continuing to be effective in D.C. and making good news and bring home bacon. I'm hoping that will reinforce people's opinions. They're like, yeah, I made the right choice. Voting him was the right, you know, voting for him was the right thing to do. I stand by that choice. I'm happy about it. And just create a brand. Because one problem I don't think we talk about enough with Democrats in Georgia is just there's no brand. Like, we don't know what the party stands for. And by having two Democratic senators who get six-year terms, that is going to help us build the brand back up and have, you know, leaders in the party who have some legitimate authority rather than, you know, just being activists or being, you know, people in party chair positions and, and stuff like that. Not and definitely not denigrating those folks because I'm friends with a lot of them and love them and I was one. Uh, but it's just like it's good to have people with actual power that can actually vote on bills and be on CNN and, you know, do do the things that only elected officials can do, you know, bring home actual real money to the state. That's just going to help build the brand and, and give other Democrats things to campaign on and, you know, frankly, give other Democrat candidates someone to point to and be like, oh, singer, you know, Warnock is a you know great leaguer. I, I, I follow a lot of the same things he does, you know, support, you know, some of the initiatives he's pushing, you know, just it's just it just makes things more concrete and helps voters understand what the party wants to do by having someone in power that can can actually deliver on the promises other candidates are making. So I, I think that is going to be tremendously helpful. And I, I think it's just it's just too early to write off Georgia for 2024, 2026 or going forward because the state's been changing so much and the politics have changed so much. And even the short time we've been doing this show, um, I, I think it's just, I think it's just a wait and see, honestly. And just... Um, really take into consideration candidate quality going forward and, and just recognizing how much of a difference that can make. What did you think of how high the turnout was in this runoff? I think there was some anticipation, particularly with the fact that this race would not decide the balance of power in the Senate, that this would uh, kind of fall by the wayside a little bit in, in terms of people's attention and willingness to get out and vote again. Um, but turnout, and you probably know the numbers better than I do, but Turnout, I think, was surprisingly high for a runoff that that didn't have the kind of stakes that the 2021 ones had. Uh, what did you think of of how the turnout numbers turned out? I think the Republican Party strategy of trying to prevent Saturday voting from happen, happening really, really aggressively backfired. Uh, and I think just the fact that it was in the news so much about voting and the fact that the runoff calendar was just so much shorter i think it just kind of like got everyone off their butts you know basically because it's not like oh i have a month to do it it's like oh god i have like a week to do it. i gotta do it tomorrow <laughs> you know it's just like i gotta do it now this is the only chance i've got i think that sort of um really supercharged things plus the fact that Raphael warnock has raised more I mean, he's raised as much money as some presidential campaigns in the, you know, two plus years he's been in a constant state of campaigning. 
And so I just think they're very, very good at turning out voters and messaging voters. I mean, I got so many text messages. I got at least one text message a day about going to vote and encouraging encouraging me to vote. And here's a link to show me how I go vote and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I think just that much attention and pressure and the fact that we were like the only show in town. So even if you're a person that only really watched national news, like they're probably going to talk about this race at some point. And the fact that we have two superstar candidates in the sense that, uh, of their ability to make news. I mean, Raphael Warnock was constantly pumping out interesting ads that you know caught people's eyes and made news, and he's a great speaker. And then you have uh, Walker, who is a you know very famous person who is also saying really dumb things that go viral constantly. So I, I just think it was easy to pay attention to this race. I think if it had been two less dynamic candidates that turnout probably would not have been nearly as high. But just the fact that there was, you know, just so much drama associated with this race for reasons completely internal to the race. I think that just kept the attention on it. And, you know, I mean, like everybody, it's what like I, I could not go a day without, you know, even my non-political friends and family like talking to me about this race. So that that definitely was a different dynamic that I think came down pretty much primarily to the personalities of the Gates. We considered a little bit of this buzz for the other big winner in Georgia's midterm elections, Governor Kemp, who won uh, a a nearly 50-50 state by, what, seven points. Um, and there was some speculation about presidential buzz around him. Uh, let's consider it a little bit for Senator Warnock, too. Now, now, Governor Kemp and Senator Warnock face much different time periods and much different opportunities, particularly given if... Uh, President Biden does run for a second term. But do you think we might be saying uh, President Reverend Raphael Warnock one day? Uh, I definitely wouldn't mind it. Uh, you know, it's been too long since Georgia's gotten a president. So it's about time we have another president. Uh, I would hate to see the Senator Reverend uh, leave the great state of Georgia because uh, I like having him around. Uh, you know, I, I, it was great when I was in you know Young Dems and going to Democratic Party events more often than... Uh, I am now. I always enjoyed when I saw on the program invocation, uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, five minutes, because I knew that one, it was going to be really great, and two, it would definitely be more than five minutes and more like 35 minutes. Uh, so I, I would hate to see him leave, but I, I think the buzz is appropriate, frankly, for both Brian Kemp and Raphael Warnock. They are both really great campaigners. They both won pretty impressive victories considering the political environments they were in. Cause I mean, it's no small feat that I mean, Brian Kemp beat a former Senator who was backed by Donald Trump, who ran some pretty good campaigns. And now his, his primary campaign for governor was pretty bad, but like his other campaigns were pretty good. So I, I don't think there's any sleeping on Brian Kemp's, you know, potential as a candidate. And I think Warnock similarly has run really, really difficult races and done a, really good job in all of them. So, uh, I mean, he's no less qualified than many other people that have run for president with similar resumes, uh, as him. So I, I definitely think it's not premature or anything. Uh, I would definitely think he would make a lot more sense in, uh, 28 than now, but you know, when your moment's there, you got to go for it. And I don't know if it is or not, uh, but I'm sure there's there's somebody in his office uh, who, who who's thinking about it and pitching him on the idea. 
Well, the interesting thing in terms of timing is, you know, and it, it requires you to play forward a lot of different things, but um, if Warnock is presented with a re-election bid that would be kind of challenging in 2028 or the opportunity to run for president, either to follow to be the third term of a Democratic president or to challenge a Republican president that unseated uh, President Biden, um, the timing lines up a little bit easier for Senator Warnock in that scenario than it does for for Governor Kemp, who would have to make the decision, and he would have to start making a decision very soon, that he would not finish his four-year term as governor. And I forget what the resign-to-run rules are in Georgia, but I don't know if he'd have to resign or not. I, I don't um, think he does for president. I'm pretty sure it's only that you can't be on the ballot in two for two different offices at the same time. I might be wrong, but I, I think that's the rule. But in any event, Governor Kemp would have to decide if he has a successful bid, it means leaving his leaving the governor's office before the end of his term. Um now a lot, you know, uh if if people on the Republican side I think, side I think are most looking, politicians would, would be okay leaving <laughs> their one job to be president though. I would think so. I don't know. I mean, but that's the funny thing about the speculation around Governor Kemp is there's a lot of outside noise that says he might be a very good fit for Republicans and potentially a more popular, more acceptable alternative to somebody like Ron DeSantis. But you don't, you know, Governor Kemp hasn't really played into that at all, at least publicly, Uh, whereas DeSantis, you know, at DeSantis's election victory party when he one second term for governor of Florida, uh, they were chanting two more years. Yeah. Which, which is I, only half of his governor's term. Which, you know, I actually kind of found that uh, reassuring because, I, you know, I appreciate that the voters, like, understood exactly what they were voting for. And, you know, that is like, yep, we're, we understand what, what your plans are. Um, it, it, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's, it's always impossible to project these things out. I feel like Kemp would probably have a better time if he finished out his term and then ran two years later, but you know, as you pointed out, that might be a Republican administration and he couldn't really do that very effectively. So I, you know, I, I, I won't be shocked either way. I was interested to say that, uh, to see though, uh, that when someone asked Kemp about it, he said something along the lines of like, oh, I keep all options open and, you know, think about things. So I was like, Oh, okay. Cause I kind of expected you to just say like, no, like, why are you asking me this? Uh, but he he gave a much more um, it's like yeah I wouldn't say no if it made sense which you know which I appreciate I, I I love answers like that that are genuinely honest of like yeah I always look at things because I think that's true of most people. Well, pencil this in for for a wild scenario, and I only say this because I always thought it would have been impossible that two Senate runoffs in Georgia in 2021 would have decided the balance of power in the Senate and whether or not. Uh, President Biden had any opportunity at a legislative agenda, but a Governor Kemp that runs for president and wins in 2024 would have the possibility of facing a Senator Warnock who leaves office and tries to challenge fellow Georgian for president in 2028. That would make Georgia the maximum main character in all of all of politics. So it's possible. Yeah, I'd love to see it. <laughs> Keep Georgia the center of the political universe. Yeah, where we belong. 
In fact, let's uh, good segue here because Georgia does remain at least adjacent to the center of the political universe when it comes to uh, national Democrats. President Biden earlier this week made a request to the National Democratic Party that they reorganize the primary calendar starting with the 2024 Democratic primary. Now, Georgia would not be first in President Biden's uh, request here. That honor would go to South Carolina. Um, very fitting for Joe Biden, whose entire campaign was turned around in South Carolina. Um, but Georgia would vote fourth, and they would vote two weeks after South Carolina. Um, there is whether or not the calendar looks exactly like this is very TBD, but there is a lot of discussion and uh, pressure on Democrats to shake up the primary calendar. And most, uh, I think, most importantly to Democrats not from Iowa is that they want Iowa kicked off of the first uh, the first spot on the list. The Iowa caucus would get demoted. And also as a part of this change, no states would have caucuses anymore. Everybody would have primaries. Um, but what do you think about uh, Georgia moving up the ladder and uh, two southern states, Georgia and South Carolina, being featured very early in the Democratic primary calendar? I, I think it's great. Um, I also think it's in, indicative that uh, Joe Biden is planning on running for president again because this is a very, very favorable map to him. And I, I think this is a map that uh, is signaling to any potential challenger, uh, good luck, because <laughs> this is this is a map that would be very hard for a challenger to break into because these are some of the states that have Biden's uh, strongest supporters in them. Uh, the other thing is I think it's good for the Democratic Party as a whole, uh, not just because like oh, diversity is good and we want you know more diverse candidates and people who appeal to diverse candidates to win, but I, I think just on a pragmatic level and the successful re-election of Raphael Warnock is a great indicator of this, is that if you don't do incredibly well with minority voters, especially black voters, like you're going to have a really hard time winning the presidency. And candidates who cannot figure out how to appeal to that constituency like Bernie Sanders uh both campaigns had a lot of trouble with this and you know some pe some people have mentioned how Pete Buttigieg uh has had a really hard time appealing to African American voters I think we do the party and the country honestly a disservice by you know making a primary calendar where a candidate could win without the support of a core con constituency, if not the core constituency of the party that he's trying to be the nom he or her are trying to be the nominee of. And so I think this is great. And I also love the fact that Georgia is uh, way up there on this list. Uh, I hope Brad Raffensperger and the Republicans see this as the great opportunity for the state of Georgia that it is and move, up, move themselves up on the Republican calendar. I would hope that would be something that the Republicans would be willing to do too, because Georgia is a very competitive state and it's got a lot of electoral votes and they'd be kind of dumb to sleep on us. So I'm hoping that uh, this is a way for Georgia to, you know, just stay, stay important. Uh, Cause I would also love, you know, for every presidential candidate to like personally come to my house and like sit in my living room <laughs> and beg for my vote uh, the way they do in these early States. Uh, that would be really fun. Uh, I, you know, the Perry fair will get even bigger. And, you know, there will be, be so many fun consequences if we are uh, a state that is uh, higher up on the calendar. And I, I think it's just a smart move for the party as a whole. And 
I, I think, and I, I heard an interview on, on Hacks on Tap with uh, one of the DNC Rules Chair uh, members who uh, was talking about how the intention of this order change is that it will not permanently be this order, but the order will actually be addressed every time. And I think that's a great idea. As much as I would love for Georgia to permanently you know, be in the early lineup, I think it, it just, one, it's more fair for other states to have a chance, but two, I think it just, it makes more sense as a party to, to try to build a calendar that plays to the strengths or play of the party or play, you know, tries to shore up some weaknesses um, by helping and helping to encourage candidates to build up organizations in certain states and to try to appeal to different constituencies by being more present there. So all in all, I, I'm, I just think this is a great move and uh, happy that Georgia is going to get more influence in the process because uh, we should because we're a really important state and there's a lot of people here and uh, a lot of constituencies that the, the national party should pay more attention to and learn from. Uh, so I'm hoping that this this process will will go through and that Republicans vote and, and move their primary, frankly, too, uh, up ahead, because I think that benefit both parties. Yeah, now there are quite a lot of wrinkles to this. One being that basically all of the states involved would have to agree to rearrange their elections calendars. And when I initially saw the news about this, you know, the uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger got asked if he would basically go along with Democrats' request to do this. And he didn't really commit either way, but um, his spokesperson did say that they wanted that they were not going to host two separate elections, one for the Democratic primary and one for the Republican primary. And that does raise the question of whether or not it does become in the Republicans' incentive to move up the Georgia primary. And it, it certainly starts to become in their incentive if Governor Kemp decides to make a run. Um, but it's not just Georgia officials that have to agree. It's officials in, in all of these states that have to agree and in particular, Iowa and New Hampshire are going to fight like hell to keep their their uh, positions in the calendar. New Hampshire has a state law that requires them to be the first primary in the nation. It is in part why Iowa hosts a caucus, because uh, a caucus is different than a primary. So it, it uh, falls in line with New Hampshire's legal requirements. Um, so it's all very up in the air how this is going to play out. So we'll, we'll see how that goes, but it, it does create a really, I think the, the opportunity there in for democratic and Republican cooperation in Georgia does actually, when you think about it, look kind of strong, particularly if governor Kemp is either thinking about jumping in himself or if he's interested in being a kingmaker and trying to uh, select who the nominee is going to be, if it's not going to be him. Let's follow up on some other news that we uh, talked about previously. So the state Supreme Court reinstated the state's abortion ban. Um, it was uh, put on hold after a, a superior court in Fulton County found that the law violated the state constitution because the superior court ruled that the law was passed at a time when it was unconstitutional under the federal constitution then the ruling uh, in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe v. Wade made the state abortion ban constitutional based on the federal constitution, and it then ultimately went into effect in the state. But the Superior Court ruled that because it was unconstitutional when it was passed in the state, 
that that is a violation of a provision in the state constitution that does not allow the legislature to pass unconstitutional statutes. The state Supreme Court stepped in, let the ban go back into effect, and then there are going to there's going to be a future case at a as of now undetermined date about whether or not the ruling at the superior court level is ultimately going to stand. And Luke, you're the lawyer here, so I'll, I'll turn this over to you. Um, what did you think about the state Supreme Court allowing the ban to go back into effect and anything that you can see early on here about whether or not ultimately the state may be likely to prevail and allow that abortion ban to stand under this one particular constitutional issue First, I would apologize because I forgot to mention the fact uh, last time when we talked about this that a stay was very possible and likely in this scenario um, because the, the the state had a very strong argument for a stay and, and that's primarily because when you are defending a current law that, that gives you a pretty strong argument that that law should be allowed to stand. You want laws to be able to stay on the books if they're there, um, unless you have a really, really strong argument that they should be knocked off because the court doesn't want to interfere with the legislature unless they have to. Um, so that also kind of goes into the next thing I would say, which is that this doesn't mean a whole lot for the case going forward. Uh, it, you know, obviously it would have been a strong indicator that the law was going to be overturned had they not granted the stay. But I think the staying itself doesn't tell us much because, you know, the order granting the stay doesn't go into a bunch of detail. It just says we've granted the stay basically. Um, so we don't really know what the court's thinking as far as what it's going to do with this argument. I think the other thing too, that I should have pointed out and I think still remains true is at least from the reading I've done, I haven't come across a case where a law was once unconstitutional and then became constitutional uh, between the time of its passage and the time that a lawsuit was brought about it. And so that's going to be a weird wrinkle that the uh, court is going to have to, to deal with um, based off of the previous case law that I've read and brought up has been brought up in the briefs. I would think that the answer would be what happens at the time of passage, but I'll admit that the state does make a good argument that I really hope and want to see the petitioners address of just like how our legislature is supposed to challenge laws that they think are unconstitutional. And there are sometimes we definitely want legislatures to do that because sometimes, you know, they will be challenging, uh, you know, laws on racial segregation or laws, that, you know, on, other issues that they would be, you know, promoting progressive values by challenging, um, you know, just how, how, how does that work? How does, how does that work in this, in this circumstance? I, I think the state, you know, they're making the argument they have to, but some of it is, is bizarre <laughs> to me, the way they frame it a little bit obtuse of just like, not, not just admitting the fact that like federal law was different and there's a different constitutional law regime prior to Dobbs than after Dobbs. And, but at the end of the day, I, I think I stand by most of what I said last time. Uh, but I, I do want to, you know, I, I do think this is a unique situation that the court is going to have to be very smart in how they address. And I think there's unintended consequences that can stem from either 
uh, ruling here. So I, I'm, I'm going to be watching this closely and and hope for the best for uh, the overturning of this law, primarily because I think it would be the right public policy in this in the sense, and I think this is one of the stronger arguments on the side of the petitioners that the intent of the legislature here was not to actually have this law, but to use this as a vehicle to challenge the current federal law. Um, and I, I think just the weight of the vote that the legislature took is significantly different in the context of what we are doing is about to be actual law in the books in Georgia versus a political red meat abortion law. So, Unfortunately, that is actually legally not very relevant, uh, but it is uh, mostly and morally relevant to me and politically relevant. The case, at least in some sense, seems to turn on whether or not when the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, overturned Roe v. Wade through the Dobbs decision, did the Supreme Court, obviously the text of the Constitution has not changed. But did the the new interpretation by the Supreme Court mean that effectively the law had changed because the Supreme Court changed its interpretation of the law? Does that mean that there is sort of a before and after where federal law under the constitutional interpretation of the Supreme Court meant one thing pre-Dobbs and means another thing post-Dobbs? Or does, because the Supreme Court changed the interpretation of a constitution on this issue, did the constitution always mean what the Dobbs court said it meant and that the, the interpretation under Roe that governed abortion law for so long, at least my novice reading of the state's argument is the state is are in some sense trying to say that that interpretation of the law never existed because it was wiped away by the U S Supreme court decision that overturned Roe. And that sort of taps into the question of whether or not, the state's abortion ban was unconstitutional when it was passed because if you accept that the state if you accept that the US constitution decision in Dobbs changes the way that the constitution has viewed abortion for the entire history of this country then that is sort of a backdoor way around the void ab initio uh state constitutional provision that it's that is at issue here but it's a it's a very at least from my novice eyes, it's a very weird way to think about the law to say that if the U.S. Supreme Court changes its interpretation of something, it's as if the prior interpretation never existed. That <laughs> I, I think for everyone's sake, we should not get too deep into it uh, on this podcast, uh, but I, I think the answer here is, is there, it, it's, it's complicated there are some situations where that actually does make sense as the right interpretation. I don't know if how the the interaction of those two ideas is really going to be uh, the basis of this can the, the this this case. I think is just how do you square those two circles? Um, because it is true, and they 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 point this out in in the states brief that like there was no actual like amendment to the constitution so the like words of the constitution did not change but the inter interpretation of the constitution did change but like that is the basis upon the unconstitutionality of the law 
when it was passed, you know, it is based. And so I, I guess the question is really going to come down to for this doctrine, what matters? Is it the legislature's, you know, passing something that was unconstitutional at the time? Or does it matter that winging is challenged because unconstitutional? Because the the doc, you know, part of the doctrine is just the fact that you know, if something is currently unconstitutional, then it was always unconstitutional. And there's lots of reasons why that is a good and preferable rule. But it's a it's a unique situation, at least to me, of a law that was once unconstitutional but now is constitutional, and how that is supposed to be addressed. It is somewhat amusing from the the state's perspective that if they had explicitly passed a trigger law that said this law will not go into effect until, you know, some legal way to say that Roe v. Wade is overturned, um, that the state probably would not have ended up in this situation. Oh, they, de- they, they definitely have. would not be in this situation. And the, the irony to that is that if you, if you dig back deep into the peach pot archives or into the news of, I guess this was the beginning of 20, 19, I think. Um, yeah, 2019, Governor Kemp's first legislative session, he initially wanted a trigger law. And uh, he was basically talked away from that position by conservatives who wanted to pass this version of this ban. Um, so interesting, interesting outcome there. I mean, the, the other thing, the, the reason that this is interesting news right now is that if the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, was to find that the abortion ban was unconstitutional and needed to be passed again, it would create this immediate intense pressure from social conservatives for the legislature to pass this law again in this legislative session. And you can't imagine that there would be any sort of willingness to wait. Uh, And so it would put this, this big question on the desk of, Governor Kemp and Republican lawmakers again, but the the very different dynamic this time would be you pass this bill, you ban abortion in Georgia, it's going to go into effect upon enactment. And so there's a very direct cause and effect, whereas a few years ago there wasn't because uh, some Republicans could hide behind the Roe v. Wade uh, view that the Supreme Court had and say, oh, this is something that will never be law anyways. Um, let's wrap here with... Uh, what may happen in Washington in the, in the final days of Democrats full control of Washington and something that was sort of interestingly absent from Democrats midterm messaging, um, but was a surprisingly expansive thing that they did early in the Biden administration was they passed a, a, a very expansive child tax credit that increased the value of the credit, made it much more available and effectively cut child poverty in half in this country. And we talked about it a lot at the time because it was such a sort of easily understandable and expansive accomplishment early in the Biden administration. Uh, But what they did when they passed that expanded child tax credit was they made it only effective for a single year based on the political logic that it would be so popular and people would be so appreciative to have you know, families with children would be so appreciative and politically motivated to have additional funds to to handle the costs associated with the pandemic, the costs associated of of raising children, that this was something that would eventually become permanent in U.S. law. But ultimately, at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022, that 
expanded child tax credit was allowed to expire. Then Democrats really didn't mention it at all on the campaign trail in 2022. But there is currently a push from some Democrats and anti-poverty advocates to bring back a more modest version of that expanded child tax credit and to pass it into law here during the lame duck period. Um, Importantly, what some Democrats and advocates want to see is to make that tax credit more available to some people with the lowest incomes who previously were ineligible. Um, And this would really uh, increase the ability for this tax credit to pull for this tax credit to pull more kids out of poverty and give them family incomes with enough uh, room in them to have stable upbringings that will help them do better in school, help them have better health, help them help them have better outcomes for their lives. This is a this is a pretty big issue that is going to be debated here in the lame duck, and we'll see if uh, Democrats can get Republican buy-in to do this expanded tax credit. But it also is one of the maybe most immediate examples of how Senator Warnock can have an impact in Washington when he goes back up there now that he's won re-election, in that he was among the Democrats that was pushing for this expanded tax credit to be permanent at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. And he's going to have an opportunity here um, to put a modified version of that back into law. Um, Luke, I don't know. I thought it was uh, worth mentioning here, given that you know we focused so much on campaigns recently that we've kind of uh, lost our focus on governing. But there is still some governing going on and there is an opportunity for Democrats in their last few weeks of control to actually do another pretty expansive thing uh, that would lower costs for people and make it easier to get by in this economy. Yeah, and it's also been, you know, something that Reverend Warnock did actually talk about, not as much as some other issues, but I, I do remember him pretty consistently bringing it up or at least mentioning it. Uh I, I, I think it's a I think it's interesting how little people really fought to get the child tax credit back. I also expected it would be a more uh, popular uh, initiative that you know people would really talk about and really be angry about losing. I was I was actually worried that Democrats would get hurt uh, by be, because of the fact that we weren't able to get it back uh, during this campaign season. So, especially based on the fact that one, the program seemed to be incredibly successful, at least for all, from all the. You know, data people uh, I, I like to listen to talking about the effects on child poverty and, you know, other things. So it seemed like there was a lot of positive benefits to the program. And then, too, I just feel like I hear all the time from people <laughs> saying, like, why don't they send us more checks? We really love the checks. Um, so, I, yeah, I was just I was just surprised that uh, the, the program went away at all to begin with. Um, but I, I, I'd be happy to see it come back uh, since it was so successful. And I think it's a. Uh, important investment uh in in the future and just seeing how hard it's been on kids with covid and families giving them a little bit more support i think would be a really really good move for the country and not you know just a good political move uh it would just be a a good thing for us to do because as has been discussed many a times (laughs) america its current political system leans towards the old and wealthy uh, strongly, or the economic system does. And so having a little bit more 
uh, just, you know, of that, of our wealth go towards helping young families. I think that would go a long way, but I am biased since I am soon going to be, uh, having a young family myself, but still, uh, you I, would I be eligible for this, uh, child tax credit. Yeah. Um, you know, it's ultimately it became a casualty of Senator Manchin, uh, declining to find any version of the build back better legislation that he could support, you know, child tax credit was, you know, most likely going to be a part of that. Um, and then some of the polling that was done in the interim did find that actually Democrats were harmed sort of through a lost opportunity in that Democrats were scored higher on being trusted to handle the economy and trusted to handle, uh, the problems you know, the, the polling question was something like, do you believe Democrats are, uh, care about people like you and care about people in your situation? And when the child tax credit was in effect, Democrats were polling higher on that. And then a few months after it lapsed, uh, Democrats numbers fell back down to where they were before the child tax credit went into effect. So, you know, you could have seen if they had extended it, particularly through the midterm elections, you likely would have seen better numbers for Democrats on do they care about people like you? What it, are they capable of uh, addressing the economic issues you're facing? And that, you know, in some sense, it could have been the difference in keeping and losing the House, um, you know, and it maybe even could have been the difference in a, in a Senate seat or two uh, with some of those other close races. Um, so it is, you know, surprising in how stark that polling was and yet, it did not uh, motivate action from congressional Democrats, but in part largely because uh, Senator Manchin was just outright opposed. Um, so that was that was kind of how that ended up. Well, that is something that we'll keep an eye on uh, as we head through the lame duck, and then it's not going to be long before we're back in legislative session with uh, the the governor, the new lieutenant governor, the new speaker of the house. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they all approach the issues that the state is facing as we head towards 2023. Uh, but with that, we are going to leave it there for now. Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Uh, happy to be here as always. And go dogs. Go dogs. We'll see you against Ohio State in Atlanta for the playoff. We're back in the playoff yet again. Uh, bring us the second national championship, Stetson. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.